You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to and enjoying our little show here, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Let's begin this week's episode with my favorite thing to do, answering your questions and comments for this week. And we're going to begin over at Facebook with Claude, who writes, well, been a couple of weeks since I tossed you some questions. Show has been at a lull lately, not much new, so my mind has been wandering a bit on things found in the past. I've always been intrigued on some of the workings found in Oak Island, always wondered what they were and why they were built. The show has done a really good job of showing some of these, but never really dug too far into what they were. One of the things I always wondered was what the U-shaped structure was. Always thought it looked like a military structure or something. Show never really discussed what it was, just that it was there. Stipulated that maybe attempt to block drains, etc. Also, the uncovered wharf. Anyway, I'm rambling, uh, but I just wondered, and I did a Google search, came across Oak Island Mystery Solved website. Gotta say, that theory makes a lot of sense. The pictures of the barn markings and Roman numerals, the notches and the lumber, etc. The wharf found in the cove as well, all seem to fit. What's your take? Okay. Quite a little bit of a stream of consciousness there. Uh, if you're referring in the end, last part to Gordon Fader and Joyce Steele, their theory in their book, The Oak Island Mystery Solved, uh, and I'm pretty sure you are, then yeah, I do agree. Uh, they have come up with some terrific stuff. I mean, there's no other way to put it. And they fit a lot of the evidence that we have seen over the years, not only here on the show, but on you know evidence taken in over the years before the Laginas. Uh, they've done a great job of kind of fitting it into their their theory, you know, and their evidence. Um, the problem that I tend to have with it is whatever they can't fit, and there is stuff that they can't fit, but whatever they can't fit um, into their theory, they, uh, this is going to sound like a pejorative and it really isn't meant that way, but they kind of just either ignore it or they seem to sort of toss it aside as either lies or potential hyperbole or, or uh, you know, that kind of thing, however you want to say that. And in the long run, they may be absolutely correct about that. I am just not in my research and in my discussions and in my talking to you guys and to doing this podcast. I'm just not ready to do that yet with a lot of the things that they that they that they toss aside. Let me just put it that way. And Claude, about the rest of your email, I can't agree with you more. The fact that they uncovered the U-shaped structure and then just covered it back up in this slipway, and then they just all kind of covered it back up and 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 you know. <laughs> Um, you know, and it's been going for three plus years now that they've covered this up and not talked about it is really fascinating. Um, but I think you might have hit it here. You know, I think that the team and myself included, I've got to tell you this, have decided that it was most likely an early attempt. Now I'm talking just about the U-shaped structure, most likely an early attempt by searchers undocumented at building a cofferdam to search for the box drains in Smith's Cove and not, to use their terms, something built by depositors. Now, 
I think that's the same with the L-shaped structure. I don't know anything about the slipway. Uh, I cannot tell you what that could be or why that was there other than just being an old wharf in an area like, you know, you see here. Uh, that's the only way I can reasonably explain why the team has seemingly tossed it aside and no longer discuss it as part of evidence for whatever they believe might have happened here because they have come to the conclusion that that's what this is, that the U-shaped structure and some of the other structures are early searcher attempts, most likely undocumented um, by searchers at a cofferdam just like they built when they found it. See, the thing is, a lot of researchers, and some of them are on the show here, you know, and are part of the team, talk about the history of Oak Island as if they know everything, as if it is all well documented and even photographed and all that stuff. It is not. Anything really before the turn of the nineteenth the turn of the twentieth century, anything before people like Blair and Gilbert Hedden and things like that, any of that earlier stuff, the documentation on that is just not very good. It just isn't very good. So the fact that they may have tried to build something here and then maybe they tried to hide that they were building it here because they didn't want people interfering or, you know, that is all very possible. So the fact that somebody could have built that undocumented, as strange as that might seem and as weird as they seem to think it could be the some of these researchers, that really is the possibility. And they are one of the things that they never talk about is they are discovering new searcher stuff all the time. And a lot of times those searcher things explain stuff that were presented to us either by this team or years earlier, decades earlier by other by other searchers as evidence. And they really no longer are evidence. Anyway, it's great to hear from you, my friend. Don't be a stranger. Um, staying on Facebook, here is Bert who says, hey, Dave. Could it be, pun intended, that seeing the weather, the DMT-2 shaft was actually dug before DH-82? Then we would already know all, all four holes will yield no results. Uh, Bert, I got to tell you, I didn't catch that last week. I'm not that observant, I guess. Um, and you're not the only one who, who, who I saw make this observation. This week, I got to tell you, it looked a little bit like kind of more possibly early fall, late summer, maybe a nice day in the fall, which does happen in Nova Scotia occasionally. Uh, but could this mean that the caissons, you know, be that as it may, could this, could it be that the caissons that were being shown and the work being done on that is actually being shown to us out of order? Yes, it certainly can be the case. This is absolutely a possibility. And I've discussed this with, with, uh, with you guys many times. We'll do it again here. The editors absolutely take liberties with a lot of things, including the timeline of events in each summer. And understandably so, in my opinion. I, I'm not on the train of people who hate this. I know that people don't like it when I say this, but The Curse of Oak Island is not a documentary. It is a reality-based television entertainment show and there is a big difference between those two things and I personally made a choice years ago not to worry about things like this to just let the editors present some of these things in the way that they feel makes it more entertaining for the viewer I mean as I said last week I don't want to just sit and watch hammer grabs come up for an hour 
that doesn't make good television. So sometimes they have to take stuff done earlier in the summer and splice it into these episodes because during this month or so when they had Rock on there doing these caissons, maybe that's all they really did. So they got to kind of break it up a little bit just to make it a little more entertaining than watching hammer grabs come up and down. I hope that makes sense. Again, I just kind of allow them to do this and I don't worry about that kind of stuff. I really don't worry about the actual timeline of discoveries. Um, but I do understand why other people do, uh, and I understand why that makes them feel maybe a little un- that, that the um, the editors are untrustworthy. I just don't think the, the the two correlate in my mind all the time. Maybe sometimes, not all the time. I hope I put enough caveats into that answer. All right, let's go to the emails. Only got a couple here. Here is Corey who says, "Hey Dave, quick question for you about the ten foot caissons. The last few episodes have focused on this week. They just finished the third caisson. Do you know if they are leaving the cans in the ground or if they were removing each one and backfilling the holes? Seems like a lot of work and expense to install them." just to put them all back out and move on. Maybe they could find a use for them or explore them in the future like they did with 10X during the first few seasons. I'm a longtime listener, and I really enjoy your podcast. Thank you for your efforts, and keep up the great work. Corey, I'm not on the island. I can't answer this with um, anything other than observations of the show. And as far as I know, and I think you can really come to the same conclusion just by looking at the wide shots of the money pit area during the episodes when you see these caissons, because you can tell the other ones have been removed and the cans have been pulled out and then they fill them back in. They fill these holes back in. I'm pretty sure that that's what the government would require them to do. I'm pretty sure. Um, not 100% sure about that, but I think so. Also, I think the actual physical caissons that you're seeing are all the same ones for each hole, right? I think they take them out and maybe use them again in the next hole because it's all an incredible expense. And imagine how much it would cost to keep those things in there and have actually buy those things. You know, this entire project is just very costly. And also with regards to exploring them more, I can't, again, I can only say what's on the show and what I know from talking to people on the island. I really do think they are exploring these cans way more than we are actually getting to see on the show. But they aren't finding anything in them. So therefore, we get these abrupt endings to these cans. And all we really focus on is these pieces of wood coming out and something here. And then a really quick, uh, hey, uh, we're hitting bedrock. Let's go. You know, that's it's, it's done. OK. And we move right on because producers don't like to dwell on bad news. And we know that. And we've, we've, we're veterans of this show. We know that. So uh, you're right. It does look strange. But I think that's what is happening here. Anyway. Let's finish up our emails this week with our friend Ginger, who writes, I listened to your last episode twice yesterday. Considering everything you and others mentioned, I have moved into the camp of whatever was there is gone now. I'm still holding on to belief that there is a dry tunnel somewhere on that island. Remember the captain's log that the depositors used to get in there and that people who went back to get it out also used. I think it also makes sense that whoever went back to retrieve it left no historical record because depending on what it was, they didn't want to get involved with the politics nor allow their adversaries to know they had those financial resources. The fact that they keep finding only broken bits of stuff really solidifies my position on this. Up until this time, I completely believed that something was down there, but I've seen enough and heard enough that I no longer believe it. The Chinese coin, the Spanish Maravedi are just things that people drop and have nothing to do with treasure. Ginger. Ginger, um, again, I've said this a lot to you guys today. You are not alone by any means. 
and I am starting to agree that the evidence we are seeing now, especially over the last couple of years, is indeed looking more and more to me like traces, like this is what we're what we're seeing is traces left behind after whatever was put down there was then removed sometime later, and this is what we get as a result. Um, that seems to me like a very plausible explanation for what the evidence is that we are seeing here. It really is. And as we keep digging more and more of these holes and pulling out all this dirt and finding nothing but a, but a, a chip here, a piece of wood there, be, may it be an incredibly old piece of wood, you know, it just leads you to believe that that's really all that's left in all this, you know. Listen, the problem with any such mystery <laughs> is that those who believe in it, which are usually the same people doing the searching, right? The believers. But the people who believe in these things also have a very understandable and a very common issue with having a tendency to try to fit whatever evidence, in air quotes, they find into their theory. It's confirmation bias, right? They're already convinced that their theories are correct. That's why they started doing this. That's why they put all this time, all this effort so much of their lives. There are men on this island who have spent almost their entire adult life on trying to find this treasure. You think they would have done that if they weren't already convinced before they step on the island that something is down there? No, they are. They really are. Um, you know, So they go looking for things that fit into their ideas, and as a result, they tend to find evidence where maybe... Somebody like us, you know, not a not a you know a, a par partial skeptic, maybe a, a, some part non-believer. One of us might not consider what they're showing us here to be evidence really of anything. The best example I can think of this to kind of explain it in another way is all of those Bigfoot hunting shows that have been out there over the years, and I've watched a lot of them. I find them really funny. Um, if any of us, any of us who don't believe in Bigfoot, walk through the woods at night. We're going to hear branches breaking. We're going to hear animals walking around. We're going to hear them making all sorts of snorts and noises. We're going to hear things rustling and moving. And we would think nothing of it. But those same natural occurrences, those same natural noises that occur in these woods become evidence of Bigfoot. If you are in the woods already convinced that Bigfoot is real and he's walking around somewhere in the dark just out of view, right? Does that make sense? As observers, we need to see through that stuff, but it can be a challenge for us because not only do we have the team that are believers, but we also have this narration that buys into this kind of speculation incredibly quickly as if the narration were believers as well. And then when you have that, you have this sort of subconscious thing that kind of jumps in on the viewer where you're, where they're trying to convince you of these things without you really knowing that maybe there's another side to all this. Great stuff as always, Ginger. Great conversation. That's all for the emails this week. If you have any comments or questions for me that you would like to discuss in a future podcast, just email them in, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. All right, it's time now to discuss Season 9, Episode 21 of The Curse of Oak Island called A Lot of Secrets. I have to admit it, said this a lot over the last couple of weeks, this might be a short podcast as this episode really didn't have a lot to discuss that's new. Um, and it, it, 
I don't know how to say. I, I mean, I enjoyed watching it, but I, I I got a lot of people sort of complaining about it because it's just we seem to be sort of dragging on some of these episodes now. I'm not sure that I completely believe that, but I, I know that that feeling is out there. But let's have at it anyway here. We only have two places really to go to, the Money Pit and Lot 8, although Lot 8 kind of moves around a little bit. So let's start out there at Lot 8. If you recall last week, Paul Troutman led the team uh, on a project where he was performing a ground-penetrating radar scan over here with the goal of finding more evidence of an anomaly that was detected earlier in the season on a different type of scan, a potential metal anomaly. Now, the ground-penetrating radar showed two hits in this spot. Metal hits, I believe they thought they were metal. I'm pretty sure that's what they saw there. Um, One at five feet down, and then another one that was directly below this very first hit and all the way down at 20 feet. Now, in this first scene that we see from Lot 8, Gary Drayton and Jack Begley are metal detecting just around the surface of this area. And they pull out a piece of metal that uh, Gary thinks might be part of a chisel or that kind of thing. What follows is this really corny scene, if I'm honest, with the two guys sort of doing everything they can to possibly make this find into some significant piece of evidence. But I mean, just here and there, just here looking at this scene and not worrying about anything else until this thing gets cleaned up and tested and maybe followed up on, which could happen in future weeks. Let's, I think. The best thing here to do is just kind of put it aside. I'm not going to, um, even though they were the way they were talking to each other was sort of forced and a little corny. Uh, I'm not going to say they're wrong yet because what are you looking at? You're looking at this dirty stick. I mean, it's, it's so let's just reserve judgment on that and see what this might be. Should they bother to follow up? If they don't, you know what I say all the time it means it was not important. Now the team does not have permission here. And they point this out to just excavate anywhere they want over here on this side of the island. They only have permission at the money pit. And this has always been the case. We discussed this when we were talking about the problem with the government stoppage in the swamp. There is a special Oak Island law, a special act passed by the Nova Scotia government that allows a certain part of the island, the money pit area and Smith's Cove. They basically allow whoever is the treasure hunter at the time, the owner, to do whatever they want with those areas. But everything else, every other place, you have to go through the same kind of permitting that you would do. Now, despite the belly aching about the government involvement, what I know from talking to people involved is that the government has been incredibly generous with their permitting and allowing them to not only do what they need to do here, but to do the best, you know, the best job they can. And and they've been real good with it, including here. They did not get this permit to do whatever they wanted, right? Um, so like I said, if you want to dig anywhere else, including here, you got to get a permit and you need to file it and you need to show evidence that of what you're doing. They did not get the full permit this time, but it appears that they did receive special permission from authorities to dig down to five feet and get a look at this first possible target. So I want to stop here for a second because a lot of people talk about this permitting issue and, uh, you know, I can dig a hole in my backyard. Well, you really can't. (laughs) I mean, you can if nobody sees you. That's the problem here is everybody sees this, but you really can't, at least not in my town, not in my state. Um, And the other thing is, remember what you're permitting for. When I dig a five-foot hole in my backyard, it's because I'm building a deck or something like that. And I bring in an inspector who looks at it and he grants the permission because I'm building a deck. If I want to just dig a giant five-foot hole, pit in the ground for no other reason, I'm not allowed to do that. 
and neither are the Laginas. So they have to come up with a reason why they would do it. They have to show evidence. Well, we're searching for something in specific, you know, certain thing. And here we go again, even though we have just a little GPR hit that could be a lot of things, we don't know what it could be, the government allows them. Sure, you can dig a five-foot five foot hole, make sure you put it back, right? So that's what they do here. Marty drives in a little digger, and he starts digging. And as they do so, they start to discover what Gary Drayton and Scott Barlow, not experts in this, but still what they think are is disturbed ground. They see these rocks kind of placed there. In fact, Scott Barlow sort of compares it, I think, to the stone road that was found in the swamp because they seem to be looking at these stones sort of just under the surface that to them look out of place, like maybe they were put there for some reason. Now, this entire scene, I noticed that Laird Niven is on scene. He's the only one actually qualified to do any of this and to make these uh, observations. I was waiting this entire scene to hear what Laird Niven thought of this. And there was a point where the editing made it seem like maybe he agreed that it was kind of out of place. But I got to tell you, go back and watch that again. I, I just don't know that that's what he did. If you look at his face and you the, the fact that they only showed Laird seemingly like nodding and saying, yeah, yeah, in what was obviously a super edited scene makes me think that he really didn't think too much of this quote unquote discovery because use logic if he really did <laughs> if if the one archaeologist here actually thought that this was man-made or something weird or even just a little out of place i promise you they absolutely would have shown this guy the only guy with the credentials to make an educated determination they would absolutely have shown him actually saying so the fact that they didn't makes one believe <laughs> that maybe he really wasn't that sure now, that's one of those editing choices. We were talking about editing choices before. That's one of those editing choices I don't like. Anyway, they dug down to five feet where this GPR hit supposedly would be found, but yet they find nothing there. So I put it to the audience here because I'm not a GPR expert. If there's anyone out there who's had some, and I know there's such an amazing <laughs> level of expertise out here in the audience. If anyone has had any expertise with this kind of stuff, can you explain to me what it might have been? Email me, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. What could have shown that hit? And then you find nothing there. There's got to be some kind of explanation. Of course, we were not given any such possibility. Why did we see this hit? On GPR, Why did we think it was man-made and metal or whatever it was? And yet there is absolutely nothing there. So that was the end of the actual work done over on Lot 8. But it was not the end of the Lot 8 discussion. As we head over to the war room for a conference call with a researcher named Scott Clark. Now we saw Mr. Clark earlier this year talking about William Phipps, I believe. But he was here now to talk about his theory about the possible origins of the famous Garnet brooch found on Lot 8 by Gary Drayton back in 2017, I guess, if I'm not mistaken. Now, the long and short of it is that Clark believes it is possible that this is a gem taken off a breastplate, I think he called it, from a, a Freemason high poobah or something, I, I, which was used in Masonic rituals. He specifically points to Mel Chapel, who owned Lot 8 at one point and was also some sort of big shot Mason. I, I'm not trying to be dismissive of Masonic levels or stuff. I just don't know anything about them. And I, and I don't know how it relates to here. Um, 
you know, I, I, I don't really know much about that Masonic stuff, if I'm honest. Um, I'm not going to explain his whole theory here again, because I think they did a good job at doing that for you. I can't, can't add anything more than what we saw. Uh, and also the show provided a lot of great background information about all this kind of stuff. But what he's doing essentially in the long run is connecting the Ark of the Covenant to this idea of some sort of ritual that Chapel, in quotes, could have performed and could have, you know, is kind of a stretch, right? And my my issue here is if you started a drinking game during this scene on could-haves, you would have ended up passed out on your couch before the scene ever ended. But it does give me a chance to talk about Mel Chapel. One of the single most dedicated and longest serving Oak Island researchers and searchers in the history of the dig. We were talking about these guys before. Some of those people who dedicated their whole lives. This is one of them. Now, Chapel was a very young boy. I think, you know, younger than even the teenage age. When he first came to the Oak Island, to Oak Island with his father, William Chapel, in the 1890s. He was there when the chapel vault was discovered. He was there when they found that piece of parchment with the IV on it, that famous piece of parchment that you see all the time. After his father's ser- father's search ended, uh, Mel came back to the island a couple of, you know, 20 years later or so, never forgetting about it, never concluding his sort of thought process. Now, back in the 1930s, he came uh, and he dug what is now known as the chapel shaft. Now, his father dug and found the chapel vault. So that's right. The chapel vault and the chapel shaft are actually named after two guys, two different guys named Chapel. Uh, Mel came back to the island again in the 1950s. And even again, decades later, when Dan Blankenship and his crew were there, this was a man who, like I said, spent the better part of his life and the better part of a century dedicated to the Oak Island mystery. He's a fascinating guy, to say the least. Now, whether it be the editing or whatever reason, honestly, this wasn't my famous favorite war room theory session that I've seen. It frankly wasn't very convincing to me. Um, and also not all that, um, even if it's right, it wasn't all that explanatory, right? I'm not convinced that the brooch is some, and well, let me put it this way. I'm not convinced that the brooch and these Masonic gemstones they're showing us really matched up. I'm not convinced a dedicated Freemason such as Chapel, who is supposedly a big shot Freemason, would ever lose such a relic. Uh, Nor am I convinced that it means that there's a possible underground chamber of some kind containing the Ark of the Covenant. I just don't think the theory explains much for me. Uh, I mean, this is likely due to editing because uh, I'm sure we got about 1% of what Clark actually said. Uh, but being um, that we can only judge it based on what was presented here for us, it just seemed like the theory kind of skips over about a hundred steps that have to be in between a garnet brooch and an underground chamber containing the Ark of the Covenant. All right, it's time now to talk about the work being done in this episode over at the Money Pit. The episode begins at the Money Pit, where we uh, see work continuing on the caisson labeled DMT2. It was We saw that work being done last week as well. In the first scene, we see a lot of kind of catching up stuff. We're, we're, you know, we're kind of used to this now. Some background information to remind us where we are in all this, where this can is, why it's here. You know, Just sort of kind of getting us up to date. The narration does that almost every week. 
And in case you weren't watching last week, now you know, right? But even though there's nothing new in all this, I want to point out two things I found interesting just in this little sort of recap scene. And I don't know that I've ever discussed things said in one of these recap scenes. The first one is something that I found a little funny. Um, The narration reminds us that DMT2 is being dug just adjacent to the Hedden Shaft. This was a shaft dug in 1937 by treasure hunter Gilbert Hedden, who dug it up because he was looking for the chapel vault, another way to the chapel vault. But what I found funny was that during that scene, the narration referred to Gilbert Hedden as, quote, a treasure hunter and Freemason. It's weird to throw that in there. I'm sure he was also a father. I'm sure he was also, you know, whatever, whatever he was. Uh, I'll tell you what he was. He was a mayor. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, Not too subtle. It seemed like a not too subtle um, little cue about what much of the rest of the episode was going to be talking about. It's good to kind of keep your eyes open for that stuff if you're uh, trying to follow along here. You know, as, as he's the narration basically points out that this is what the crackpot session in the war room is going to be like that we just talked about. Um, This is the kind of thing that I think the the writers are really good at. You know, they're kind of planting these seeds in your head. Later on, when we're hearing about Mel Chapel and his Freemasonry, we have in the back of our heads that Gilbert Hedden too was a Freemason, right? Thus helping us build sort of a little subconscious conspiracy theory in our mind. That kind of stuff kills me the way they do this. Um, They've always done it too. Now, the second thing about this scene that I loved was, did we notice the image clearly taken from a camera at the end of a hammer grab going down into the can? Now, over the last couple of weeks, more than one listener has asked me, especially in the context of how they determined to shut down the work on the cans when they hit bedrock, I've been asked many times, why don't they put a camera down there and get an actual look at what they're seeing? Why are they just guessing based on what the guy operating the oscillator feels, you know? Uh, And, you know, to make maybe put a camera down there to make sure that we're actually on bedrock. Well, now we know for certain that they can do that, that they have actually set it up to do it. And I'm almost certain that we can now conclude that they have done that each and every time. We just don't get to see it. So there you go. We can we can uh, not worry about idea. We just let that idea rest from now on. Now, uh, later on in the show, we see the hammer grab dumping some spoils on the ground again. And and out of these, Gary pulls out an axe cut wood chip or what he calls an axe cut wood chip. Elizabeth over on the Patreon during the live discussion. Join the Patreon if you want to be part of a live discussion during these episodes. Uh, She wrote, I started to mentally cringe when wood chips was mentioned. If the wood chips could serve a purpose back then, what would it be? Elizabeth, um, they didn't ask that question because there really isn't an answer. I mean, it could be anything, <laughs> literally anything it could be. It's just not evidence of anything, unfortunately. Now, during the same scene, we start to hear the guys working on the oscillator, and they start to talk about how they're having issues with the machine. Um, but I have to say, I can't for the life of me figure out what this scene was about or what they were trying to drive at here. Um, and this is unusual for the editors. They usually do a good job at this kind of stuff. But at one point, it seemed like they were talking about how it was moving freely. But then I think not too long later, we're talking about a boulder or something, which would seem to be the exact opposite of moving freely, right? It was all kind of really confusing and, and really poorly presented, I guess, poorly edited and presented. So let's just put that whole thing to the side and move on as if there was nothing there really to worry about. 
So in a later scene, Craig Tester pulls out what looks like part of a wooden peg or maybe part of a broom handle or something like that. Who knows? At this point, when asked about the wood found so far in this can, Marty says, quote, a lot of it looks like Hedden, except for a few odd pieces, giving us a better idea of what they're really thinking here, right? At 113 feet, they pull out another very old piece of wood. And then at 120 feet, Rick finds what I can only describe as this giant wooden block. They say it's very old, older than the head and stuff, but they're really just sort of guessing here at this point. It'd be interesting to see if they have it dated and uh, see if those guesses turn out to be, in fact, true. I'm not sure what it would tell us, but we kind of got to see what that is. And, uh, you know, it would certainly be interesting. Certainly if it's very, very old, what would it be doing there? The next hammer grab worth mentioning brings up a huge piece of what looks like sheet metal, which despite its weird appearance was exactly what I and the team were expecting them to find here. Uh, what Gilbert Hedden dug in his namesake shaft. And by the way, I mentioned this before, Gilbert Hedden was a uh, fellow Jersey boy. He was a um, well-to-do guy and it was the mayor of a town not very far from where I live. I've actually worked in that town many times over the years Um you know, and he's he, so he's a local guy. Anyway, he dug his shaft at a, and at around 125 feet or so, what he did was he erected what was essentially a metal drill platform for the purposes of putting lowering down a, um, a a drill so he can explore some holes, do some exploratory holes down further to find about find out more about the possible chapel vault if he was on the right spot. Uh, then I guess he just left it all in there. He actually hit wood, I believe, below that 125-foot level, which got them all very excited. But for a lot of reasons that I'm not going to go into here, this is for a um, a, a pod, an off-season podcast. He was never able to go any further down. Now, the show concludes as we're still working on DMT2. And as the narration is wrapping up, Clotworthy says another thing. I'm really talking about the narration and the editing today. Clotworthy says something that makes my ears perk up here. He says, what might they discover about the history of the world? Could the writers be foreshadowing something coming in next week's episode? That's what's going through my head. And then that possible answer came, came in the form of the preview for next week, where I got to see our friend Corey and Maul on a video call to the war room. Now I can tell you for sure what Corey and Maul will be talking about next week, I have no idea, but I can tell you for sure he is often talking about changing the history of the world. So stay tuned. We got an exciting crackpot session next week for sure. So that's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Shameless plug time. Uh, don't forget, every Wednesday from 2 to 5 p.m., I'm DJing at WDVR-FM. Uh, you'll find me hosting a show, Bourbon Street Bistro, from 2 to 4 p.m., where we play the music of New Orleans. And from 4 to 5 p.m., we do a show called Island Vibes, where we do sort of a tropical music show. You can listen by going to WDVRFM.org. You can tell Alexa to turn on WDVR, or if you're in... Uh, Western Jersey or Eastern Pennsylvania, you can tune into 89.7 or 90.5 FM. Also, I produce another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions. Me and my friend Chris Poe, who's also a radio host at WDVR, we sit down over drinks and 
talk about all sorts of things, music, uh, the paranormal, politics, pubs, beer, basically anything two guys talk about at a bar, really. Uh, give it a listen. You can find sit-downs and sessions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual podcast places. If you're a sports fan, my brother does a great weekly sports podcast called The Sports Machine with Matt Parrish, who's also a longtime radio guy and uh, a longtime uh, podcast host. So check those guys out. Don't forget, you can help the show out by becoming a patron. If you think we're worth five bucks a month to you, head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Also, if you want to help the podcast out in another way, then you can do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. A big thank you to everyone who has left us a five-star rating. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to do that. And thank you for the kind words. Don't forget, you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. Just go to your search bar, put in at Digging Oak Island. And if you have any questions or comments you want to send directly to me, you can do so via those social media pages, or you can do so via email, digginoakisland at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or direct message, um, I may just answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want it read aloud, just make a note of that for me. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.